Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The author of novels including Under the Skin and The Crimson Petal and the White, Michelle Faber is responsible for some of my favourite fiction of the last 30 years. But music, not literature, is his first love, and in his new book Listen, he draws on that passion to investigate why music matters to us. The book comes out on the 19th of October, you can pre-order it now. I sat down with Michelle last week to find out more. Michelle, you're known to the world as a literary novelist, but reading your new book Listen, it's quite clear that you know at least as much and care at least as much about popular music as you do about literature. So can you tell our listeners how you came to be Michelle Faber, the literary novelist, rather than Michelle Faber, the hotshot music critic? (laughs) Hotshot music critic is very, very premature. I've been told by Canongate, my publisher, that I have just one shot at establishing myself as a non-fiction writer. So, you know, people will either be convinced or they won't be, but if they're not, apparently I don't get to have another shot. So, <laughs> um, so yes, there's a lot riding on it for me because I'm, apart from anything else, I'm not going to write any more novels, I don't believe. I've always loved music much, much more than literature. There hasn't been a contest. I'm no good as a musician. I don't have talent. So in that sense, that wasn't going to be my career. And I am good at writing. So that was that path taken care of. But um, no, in terms of what feeds my soul and, and, and what I'm enthusiastic about, it's always been music. And I, for example, would never dream of working my way through the book a shortlist. Why on earth would I want to do that when there's all this music out there that I could be listening to? It's not because I feel that literature doesn't have merit. Obviously, there's wonderful things being done, but you know we've got short lifetimes. And, and for me, the thing I'm drawn to and, and fascinated by has always been much more music. Is there a relationship between what you seek out in literature and what you seek out in music? And I mean that both in terms of your taste and in terms of the rewards of engaging with that particular art form. Hmm. I do want music to challenge me and to present me with things that I might not even like and where I'm then forced to... Uh, interrogate myself. Why do I not like this thing? What's preventing me from liking this thing? And I have that with, with literature in the same way as I have it with music. In the days when I was reading a lot, before I myself started putting out books, I would read just one book by each author in order to encounter what they do and how they do it. But I wouldn't then have an appetite for getting that same thing again in the way that you know people go to a particular author in order to get a shot of the thing that they like and they go to the author for the reliable you know genre i was never like that as a reader and i'm not like that as a listener either but i i, I understand why that's the way it is for other people because you know people's relationship with 
art is just so various. If someone announced that they didn't enjoy novels, we probably wouldn't think much of it. But when someone announces that they don't really care for music, they get treated as if they're a sort of freak or a weirdo. Why is that? That is very, very true. It does seem to be that, that in our culture, for one reason or another, perhaps because of the sheer ubiquity of music and, and how easily it, it enters our bloodstreams or... I'm not sure what the reason is, but for some reason, music is chosen as the thing you, you cannot get away with saying you don't like. And I'm, I'm very interested in tribalism and pretense and the way people deceive themselves and others. Um, I mean, a lot of my fiction is about failures to communicate and people pre pretending to be what they're not and being exposed. And yes, I, I do find it very interesting that people generally are encouraged to pretend that they have a deep love and understanding of this supposedly mutual thing that we all love and understand. But as with so many things in human existence, once you dig below the surface, you realize that what you thought the person next to you was understanding is really, they're not understanding it at all. They are living on a different planet from you. And I think that applies to, to music as much as it does to, to anything else. This book is very anti-snobbery, but it's not anti-taste. How do you reconcile the fact that you believe that people should enjoy the music that they enjoy with the fact that clearly not all music is created equal? Well, I'm going to put that question back to you. Given me an example of how not all music is created equal. Mr. Blobby's novelty record yes. is not as good as the song Golden Brown. There is a chapter that, that tackles both those songs. What I'm asserting there is not so much that Mr. Blobby isn't as good, but that the purpose that Golden Brown has served for people, the place that Golden Brown has taken people, at formative times in their life is a place that probably Mr. Blobby couldn't take them because even though for most people music is almost completely a memory trigger and a reminder of who they are and where they came from and their own childhood and their own development and young adulthood, etc., etc., and even though a record like Mr. Blobby might remind them of happy times in their childhood or hanging out with their mum when their mum was still alive, it's not going to take them into an area of sort of mysterious melancholia, which Golden Brown, if they heard it when they were eight years old or something, might introduce them to. So, yeah, it's, it's different music's enabling or allowing different kinds of experiences. Do you have any guilty pleasures that would be embarrassing to admit to as a member of the music cognoscenti? I've never understood the notion of guilty pleasures, partly because I take it as a given that the attachment that you have to various musics will be quite specific to who you are and what you've gone through and what you were exposed to during your childhood and growing up. 
I figure that's the same for everyone else. So in a way, people being ashamed of music that they really like is like them saying, I don't matter, you know, my personhood doesn't have the value that your personhood does. Therefore, I have to keep this thing secret about myself. But, you know, even I, who have no notion of the guilty pleasure, I have been affected by notions of cool and snobbery because they are so powerful. I remember going to a record store in Utrecht and I had selected a box set of a jazz classical opera based on Parsifal by, um, who was it by? Some minor jazz rock person, I can't even remember now. Uh, clearly an incredibly uncool thing. And because I had just been to London, and this was in the era when the guys in the Notting Hill Gate Exchange would look at you witheringly if, if you picked, you know, an LP that they considered to be beneath contempt. But yeah, I, I took this, this record up to the counter. Chris Hinzer, I think, might have been. He was a Dutch flautist. Anyway, I took this record up to the, the counter and I made some remark where I was sort of trying to cover myself, like almost as if to reassure them that I was buying it for ironic reasons or, you know, because I was interested in it sociologically. And, you know, I am interested in it sociologically, but, but I felt there was an embarrassment factor in, in buying this thing. And the person behind the counter said, we hope you enjoy it. And that completely floored me because they were completely sincere. You know, I, I was buying an album from them. They didn't care, you know, whether it was any good or not in inverted commas. They just hoped that I'd be happy with my purchase. And I was, I realized, you know, how toxic that snobbery can be where, where people are, are made to feel small or, or dirty in some way for, for buying a thing that they might get some pleasure from. Let's expand on that a bit. Critics in general, but I think music critics in particular, consider themselves to be gatekeepers and the arbiters of, of good taste. Why, in the age of streaming, would anyone read a music critic? I'm not sure why they would read music reviewers. That's a bit of a mystery, because if a new album comes out by somebody that you're vaguely interested in, why would you buy Mojo in order to read, you know, 800 words about whether this, this album is a return to form or whatever, when you can just go to YouTube and listen to it and make up your own mind? So that's a bit of a mystery why that role still persists. And maybe it is that people still need their older brother, you know, or whoever it is that, that helps them winnow down the, the vast amount of stuff that they might be checking out and says, no, no, don't check out that, check out this. Maybe that's, that's the reason. But in terms of this book, Listen, it's, I mean, it's not music reviewing. It's not, it's not criticism in the sense of, 
you know, trying to convince you that my take on massive attack is more, you know, profound or, or um, insightful than your take on massive attack. It's it's more about inviting people to to look at what happens when they listen and to ask themselves what that's about, what tribe they're in, how they came to be in that tribe, whether they need to be in that tribe, their relationship with you know self-esteem and I mean there's things in the book there's a chapter called Different Strokes for Different Folks where I just interview half a dozen people of color asking them how they feel about having grown up in a world where white music journalists decide what's the best album ever made and they grow up with this and and what's their take on that so I'm I'm looking at music from all these very personal and sociological angles, which with any luck will help people enjoy the music that they like more or give them more courage to explore things which they might for one reason or other have been prevented from exploring or might help them stop wasting their time checking out things which they really are not into but somehow feel that it's expected that they should be knowledgeable about. Do you think we have any choice about the music that we like? I mean, can we learn to unlike music that we used to like, or to like music that we used to dislike? Or is it just something that happens to us neurologically that whatever part of our brain controls our sense of self can't affect? I think different people have different capabilities. You know, I mean... (sighs) Donald Trump is four years old and he's always going to be that person who was formed when he was very, very young. And there's probably no hope for any expansion of that soul. And there are other people who, I mean, getting back to music, there are other people who, whose use for music is purely social. They really are not particularly interested in it intrinsically or aesthetically. So it various bits of music will have played a role in their lives, you know, when they got married or whatever. Um, and that will be what they remember. And they will always cling to that. And there'll be no room for that ever to be expanded. And that's fine. That's, you know, that's the role it plays in their lives. But people who do have an abiding curiosity about music and and an enthusiasm for it, for its own sake. I think there's lots of scope for them to go to different places with it. Often the way it happens is that you meet someone that you're very fond of, who likes a particular kind of thing which you did not like. There's that lovely line in in Depeche Mode's song, Somebody, all the things I detest I will almost like. And when I first met Louisa, my girlfriend, she, she's a huge country and western fan. And she's not an ironic country and western fan. She just loves country and western. And I hadn't heard much country and western and what I'd heard I'd found very uninteresting. And of course, I was looking for things in it that it does not supply. And this is always the danger with music that one decides is no good. We look for something in it which it's never going to supply because that's not what it's about. So, you know, if 
if somebody listened to punk looking for elegant playing or wonderful polyrhythmic drumming, they're just not going to find it. So punk will not give them the thing that they're looking for. But if they could adjust their dial to the things that punk does offer, they might enjoy punk. And similarly, once I started really engaging with country songs and getting guidance from someone who knew, you know, the really good country um, from the not so good country, then I realized, as with everything, that once you dig below the surface, there's loads of wonderful stuff to discover. And yeah, it's, it's, it's become an area which, you know, I would now say is something that, that I like. I think there's loads of scope in that way for, for loads of us, all of us. Well, not all of us, but, you know, many of us. After a certain age, music becomes a kind of time machine for many people. It's a form of nostalgia, almost, but not for you. You seem to be completely immune to the nostalgic effects of music. Can you tell us a bit about your relationship with music growing up in rural Australia? Well, where I grew up wasn't so much rural. It was the outer suburbs. So, for example, the next street along from ours was still dirt, and our street you know, had macadamized surface. So in that sense, it was fairly rough, but it, it was only, I don't know, 20 miles from, from the center of Melbourne. But yeah, very, a suburban wasteland, shall we say. But I had been transported there by my parents who had left Holland because I was born in Holland. And my parents were both very fucked up by the war. Can we say fucked up? Yep. On, yep. You've said it now. It's <laughs> <laughs> staying in. Uh, um, my father was a member of the Dutch National Socialist Party. In other words, you know, a Dutch Nazi, because that's just what parents enrolled their kids in uh, during the occupation. And he then joined the German army and deserted and hid away in Poland for the rest of the war. So he had that World War II catastrophe in his background. My mother uh, lived through the occupation and the hunger winter and almost starved to death. So the two of them got together and these two very, very damaged people decided to leave behind their, um, their other children from previous marriages and emigrate to Australia with just one child, the child of their marriage, which was me. And you didn't even know that you had a sister? I didn't know that I had a sister um, until very late on, and I didn't meet her until she was 70. And you know, I haven't, I've met her twice. Um, I hope to meet her again before she leaves the planet. But yeah, it, it was, yes. So I was cut off from my childhood and I'm on the spectrum anyway. And I think it was very difficult for these two very war damaged people to have this Asperger's autistic, whatever you want to call it, child. So we had a weird, distant relationship. And because I didn't have any contact with the rest of my family, I, I lived in a kind of historical vacuum, really, and grew up 
Well, I have almost no memory of my early life. I have a few memories of teenage years, a few more once I'm in my 20s. But basically, it seems as if it all just slips into oblivion. And that means that I can never be the person who says, yes, I remember hearing The Strangler's Golden Brown when I was 11 and what it did for me. Um, music has just never played that role in my life. And when I hear the records that I know were around when I was a kid, you know, the records that were in our home, I hear them as if I'm hearing them afresh. And I'm assessing them as I would a record that someone just pulled out of the hat now and said, here's this thing, what do you think? So that gives me, it deprives me of some of the, the emotional depth that you will get from some of the things that you love because there just isn't that plugging into this very strong current. But it also frees me up in some ways because... I don't have that thing which many, many people get to even as early as their 30s where they say, well, it's funny, you know, the, the records that were around when I was like between 15 and 25, they were just the best music ever. And civilization has just been going downhill ever since. The youth of today. Honestly. The youth of today, honestly. the sort of crap they listen to compared to, you know, Spandau Ballet or whatever crap I was listening to. Um, it's, it is a limitation. And, you know, I'm fond of humans, so I'm fond of that limitation. But it's not a limitation that, that applies to me. I, I can listen to all these musics and ask that fresh question of, of how well is this thing doing the thing that it is trying to do? And it also means I could hear a record totally unfamiliar to me tomorrow and it could be my favorite record ever because you know it doesn't it's not competing with these huge experiences which cannot be competed with there's one exception here or a slight exception so you don't cry you're not a crier you don't even cry at funerals but there is a song which does automatically almost yes make you cry what record is that and why do you think that is the song well, it's actually, I should say, the recording. It is June Tabor singing A Proper Sort of Gardener by Maggie Holland. And I suspect that the reason why that moves me so much and why it will move me at exactly the same points every time I hear it is that it is probably to do with my mother. My mother had had a hideous life and it made her unable to forgive. She lived in a very harsh, cruel, unforgiving universe. And that destroyed her life, limited her potentials. And she did her level best to pass that on to me in the way that parents helplessly pass on their, their dysfunctions to their children. And my life's mission, if you like, has been not to become that negative, unforgiving, uncompassionate person. And, you know, I've, I've got 
the Asperger's thing in the mix as well. So that has been a big, a big project to, to get there. And in the song, A Proper Sort of Gardener, a little child picks some flowers from a garden that's tended by somebody else. And the mother of, of the child is very embarrassed that her child has done this and apologizes to, to the gardener. And the gardener is, is just so compassionate and kind and forbearing, knows that this kid wants to give their parent pretty flowers. And the song is about what it is to be a proper sort of gardener. And it, it then takes it to a symbolic level of, of whether when Adam and Eve were thrown out of Eden, whether God was a proper sort of gardener. It's, you know, it's a song about forgiveness. And my mother could not forgive. And I am able to forgive and I'm grateful for being able to, to forgive. And I think that's the reason why that song has meant so much to me. But funnily enough, I've heard other versions of it, including the version sung by Maggie Holland, who, who composed the song, and they don't do to me what June Tabor's uh, rendition of it does to me. So clearly there's, there's something in the sonorities, in the actual way that the airwaves being vibrated that is important to me in a way that someone whose relationship with music was purely to do with theme and words, as many people's is. I mean, most, I would say most people, when they hear a song, they're interested in what it's about, what the lyrics are, how the lyrics are relevant to them in their life. And so in that case, it doesn't matter enormously who's doing it. You know, they could hear a cover version if it was a decent cover version, and it would still do that thing for them. And that's impossible for me. It has to be the June table. How has tinnitus changed your relationship to listening? <laughs> it's a funny one, tinnitus, because I like a lot of um, really abrasive electronic music. And some of that really abrasive electronic music sounds not dissimilar to, you know, the high-pitched sound of tinnitus. But that's a choice. I'm making that choice to listen to Einstein and the Neubauten or whatever it may be at that moment. Whereas the thing about tinnitus is that you, you can't get rid of it. It's there all the time. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's there with you when you're in bed and when you go to the toilet and so on. Um, so there is that lack of choice, uh, which can be heavy. But, yeah, and I've, I've learned to live with it. And it hasn't stopped me enjoying music. And one of the things that it has alerted me to, do you have tinnitus? No, but my partner has it really severely. Uh -huh. So I'm very interested in the psychology of it for that reason. Right. Okay. How? how uh, extremely severe. Sometimes it can be like a jet roaring in her ears. Wakes her up in the middle of the night. Uh -huh. Really nasty. Uh-huh. And has she been driven to investigating medical interventions, she et cetera? Tries, um, she tries the technology where you play a different tone 
to uh-huh. try and counterbalance it. Right. But it doesn't really do very much for her. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I've, I've experimented with that, not because I'm distressed, but just cur- curiosity. Mm. But yes, I... Did I it do anything for you? No. But I, I'm, I'm sorry that she, she has that. I mean, one thing that alerted, it alerted me to, I mean, we're, we're both humanoids sitting here and we have sort of roughly the same shape of body. You know, we're, we're, we're bipeds and we've got the head on top and we've got the ears sticking out. So there is the... Just to say, listeners, we look nothing alike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't be misled. <laughs> well, you know... To, to someone from, you know, the plan of Beetlejuice or something. We probably look very alike. We don't know what the Beetlejuiceans look like. We can't say that. That, that is true. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Um, but anyway, you know, we, we, are, we appear to be, you know, the, roughly the same design, shall we say. Um, and yet, you know, we're, we're different. And inside our heads, there's... The flesh is poking out in slightly different directions. Bits are swollen or shrunken. Um, our relationship to the to the skull, you know, all the bits in there, they're, they're they're different. And what I realized is that because I have tinnitus and you don't, that means that the sound waves that come into your ears are doing something different from the sound waves that are coming into mine. Because that's all that hearing is, you know, it's, it's the way the, the little bits of flesh and bone um, vibrate when, when the sound waves come in. And that, again, reminds us that we may imagine that we're having a shared experience, as is true of so many things in life. But in fact, you know, we are experiencing mm. things differently and that's an interesting thing to get your, your head around, that the, the things, the music that you love, it's not just that you've got different childhood experiences, blah, 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 which means that that song is going to mean something different to your friend from what it means to you. It also means that they are hearing something different, like literally hearing something different. And once you sort of let that sink in, that's, that's quite something. I mean, there's a sense in which you've been exploring that as a theme ever since Under the Skin. Yes, sure. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's all about... I mean, there's so many ways I've tackled the gulf between one being and another, and a lot of it is to do with alienation, which, you know, can be human alienation, the, the, the gulf between one human and another, but, of course, in a lot of my fiction, you've got whether humans can communicate with aliens and vice versa. Book of Strange New Things, human pastor goes to an alien planet and ministers to the indigenous population, not really understanding how they work. And Isily in Under the Skin is an alien who doesn't really understand how humans work. Arguably in The Crimson Petal and the White, big Victorian novel, um, you've got... Sugar, who's in the underclass, trying to get into this completely inaccessible middle-class existence, which he's excluded from as a prostitute and as someone who's poor and disadvantaged. So, you know, there is this sense of the enormous distance that, that can be between, you know, one human and 
and the adjacent one. There are two things about this book that made me very angry. <laughs> I really wish you hadn't pointed them out to me. Firstly, listening to vinyl is in no way technically superior to listening to a CD. Two, YouTube videos showing animals enjoying music, yeah. in fact, show animals being tormented by music. Um, no, they're not always being tormented. Sometimes they're just really happy hanging out with their humans. They're not enjoying music no, per se. No, no, they, 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 they are with humans who are having a good time and they're happy that their humans are having a good time and they're joining in with the general happiness. The animals thing was very disappointing for me as well because um, I really, really wanted to believe that. And the more research I did, the more clear it became that what was going on is that I really, really wanted to believe that. Uh, as do we all. As do we all, in defiance of sometimes extremely obvious evidence that exactly the opposite is happening. The vinyl thing... Something I really wanted to believe in spite of the evidence. Did you... You must have known the evidence before. Well, I have a lot of vinyl records. They cost me a lot of money. And I enjoy listening to them more than I enjoy listening to Spotify. I do objectively enjoy it more. Yes, and, and I'm, I acknowledge in my book that, that music does not happen in a delivery platform. Music is not, uh, it's not about CD technology or vinyl technology or, you know, whatever is happening to those disassembled and reassembled sounds. It's happening in your brain. And clearly, when you listen to vinyl, the impurities and the distortions that come along with listening to vinyl add to the experience for you and, and give it a, a, a warmth that is what you're after, is what you're looking for, and is for you uh, subjectively, which you then, of course, are tempted to say is objectively. Because my taste is subjective. <laughs> um, is superior to what's coming out of a CD. And of course, you know, we all have the right to do that because we own the the sounds that we are uh, bringing to life in our brains, all those vibrations that are coming into our ears that we are animating in our, in our minds and in our spirits, um, we have the right to say we prefer this sort of sound to another sort of sound. The problem comes when you have supposed um, experts who are trying to convince you that a particular kind of technology is delivering something which it is not delivering. Because full it, spectrum the, sound or something. <laughs> full <laughs> spectrum sound. Whatever that would sound. mean. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it's when people buy a um, moisturizer that costs 150 quid because it's got, the, the, I don't know, um, antelope placentas in it or something that is supposedly going to make your skin, you know, rejuvenate. That's bad news that they're telling you that shit because, you know, the, the, the substance is doing nothing of the kind. But that doesn't mean that that might not be the stuff that makes your skin feel really good. And if you can afford the 150 quid and after you put it on your face, your face feels great. Well, you know, why not? Lovely. 
just, you know, don't have the pseudoscience attached to it. You mentioned at the beginning that you're not a musical person. You have no real musical talent. Some professional pop acts also don't have musical talent. And once upon a time, this was considered to be extremely problematic. Yes. Now, we accept it. Can you fill us in on a bit of this history and tell us what it signifies that our attitudes have changed in this way? There is a chapter in the book called Girl, You Know It's True, which used to be much, much, much longer. And I had to, to cut it down, unfortunately, because I wanted the book to be reader friendly. I didn't want this gigantic tome that people perhaps read a terrific review of and think, yes, that sounds good. And then they buy it and they put it on a shelf and they never read it. So I had to slim the book down a lot. But what was left in that chapter, girl, you, you know, it's true, basically looks at the monkeys in the 60s who underwent an enormous scandal because they revealed that they did not play on their records. A scandal, even though they were actors in a TV show. Exactly, so yeah. So no, no one should have been fooled by that. <laughs> exactly. They, they were employed to play, to, to you know, depict a, a pop group. And actually, if truth be told, there was more musical talent in those people in The Monkees than there was in any boy band now. I mean, they could actually play instruments. It's just that they were, you know, working 10 hours a day filming <laughs> the Monkees TV show um, and didn't have the time. But yes, they, they got enormous amounts of, of vicious disrespect for the fact that they were making these records pretending to be a band. So there was that. And then I skip ahead to Millie Vanilli in the 90s, who won a Grammy for Best New Act and so forth. And they did not sing or play on their records. Their records were produced, literally produced, by a guy called Frank Farian, who, who also did Boney M in the same way. And they had this excruciatingly embarrassing exposure where they were playing a gig in front of thousands of people and the CD that they were miming to got stuck. So it was going, girl, you know, it's true, girl, you know, it's true, girl, you know, it's true. And they didn't know what to do because it was clear that they were just miming and they ran off stage and, you know, enormous humiliation and embarrassment. And um, they were vilified as well and enormous hatred uh, was directed towards them. They had to give their Grammy back, obviously. Uh, and one of them ended up committing suicide. His, his life really went down the toilet after that. Um, so there, there was this sense that, that we grew up with in that era that whether you were faking it or not, you mustn't admit or, or, it, or it mustn't be found out that you're faking it. Otherwise, there will be very, very severe retribution. Whereas we're now, as you pointed out, living in an era where there's lots of records being made by people who are posing for fashion shoots and who might have contributed a bit of vocal here and there, which is then manipulated by, you know, voice technology in order to be in tune. And nobody cares. Literally, no one cares. And people go to, to concerts 
where it's just understood that, that all of it is in backing tracks and fail safes. And, you know, it's all in the computers. And what they've come to see is, is an extravaganza of pretty people jumping around in amazing outfits. And this is the world we live in now. And of course, you can make connections with a sort of post-truth environment where people don't care anymore whether things are real or whether things are true. But, you know, on the other hand, it does mean that musicians who have been supposedly, you know, exposed as fakers don't have to descend into alcoholism and mental illness and kill themselves. So in that sense, you know, it's, it's a kinder landscape, but in other ways a scary one. You mentioned that this was originally a much longer book. Have you cut anything that you would like to talk about now that <laughs> listeners will not be able to find out about if they read listen? I will now spend half an hour talking about all the cool stuff that you will not get if you buy this book. <laughs> uh, um, no, um, one of the obvious things to cut out when I was looking for you know, words to lose, I had written eight chapters about Christian pop and rock. And this is an immensely interesting area. And it's considered just irredeemably naff. I mean, if you say that you're into Christian pop and rock, people will edge away from you. I'm actually shifting away from you right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I, what I find interesting about that, there are many things interesting about that, but there's also the tribalism and the way the media controls what our culture takes note of and what it doesn't. Because... If there's a, a gig by an up-and-coming new indie singer-songwriter at the, you know, the Frog and Spoon pub or something, uh, and there's 38 people there, newspapers might send a journalist to cover that because this is an interesting thing. You know, you never know where this person might go. And, you know, they've got really interesting lyrics, blah, blah, blah. But if down the road, like maybe 500 meters down the road, there's a stadium where 10,000 Christians are bopping up and down to this immensely successful praise music, worship music. There's no way that the media will send a journalist. In fact, they'll pretend, or they don't even need to pretend. They just act as it never happened. It, it just does not exist. And yet this is a parallel universe in which these people have their, the music that they love. And a lot of that music is actually really good. I mean, um, probably my favorite record of the last few years is Awake My Soul by Hillsong Worship. And, you know, there's lots of dodgy things about the Hillsong Church. You know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. And, you know, there's alarming things uh, in the practices of, of that church. There's lots of things which possibly need to be investigated. But as a record, Awake My Soul makes me extremely happy. And I think it's a terrific record. I think it's one of the best records made in, in the last 10 years or so. 
And the fact that our media environment does not I know I'm sounding like Russell Brand or something here, but the fact that our media environment does not want you to, does not feel it's, it's desirable for you to know about that stuff, I find interesting. It's sociologically interesting. And that has made me interested in that music and why it's so sidelined. And it's a long history. That's why there were eight chapters about it, because it starts off with Jesus freaks in the 60s and then... It becomes more slick, and then it it becomes uh, contemporary Christian music, which is very 80s and very, um, it's got all those demerits that 80s music has got. And then it, again, transmogrifies into something different again. And, and nobody's writing about this stuff, so I wanted to write about it. But I feel that even with the eight chapters, I didn't do it justice. Um, so that's another reason why I took it out, because I felt that there was more to say. Um, I had a couple of chapters on really, really extreme, violent, misogynistic death metal. And I interviewed a lot of these guys. The guy who burned down the church. No, I didn't get to interview him, but I, I did interview a couple of Norwegians. Uh, and it's interesting, because the questions I asked them were things like, are there any women in your life? Like, do you have a daughter, maybe, or a, or a girlfriend? Or what does your mum think of this music? Um, and I got some really interesting answers. And as with everything in life, once you go into a community or, or, a, or a, a tribe, all human life is there. And all sorts of different people are in it for all sorts of different reasons. I mean, were they embarrassed by the misogynistic and violent content of their music? Were they defending it in some I abstract found, term? I found one Japanese guy who's very much into the, you know, disemboweled guts falling out onto the floor from someone who's consuming their own organs and so forth type of imagery. And he would not want his son to look at that at the age that his son is now, okay. um, but would be perfectly happy for his son to get into that at an older age. But you know, of, of all the of all the people I interviewed, there was only one that fitted my preconception of what these people were probably like, and that was a clearly quite mentally ill youngster in Mexico who made this music in the middle of the night when his mum was in bed. And if she knew that he was doing it, she would get out and literally pull the plug on, on his violent, misogynistic death metal music that he was making on his laptop. Um, but no, there were some, there were lots of people who had girlfriends who sort of sew their, their stage garments for them and help them with the artwork. Right. And, and they can't reconcile these two. Obvious contradictions. Well, you know, on the on the albums which have, you know, women on the covers, I probably shouldn't describe the things that um, are being done to these women <laughs> on these covers. But you know, in in the liner notes, these people will be saying, "And dedicated to my girlfriend Shirley, I love you, honey bun." You know, it, it's the disconnect is out of this world. But you know. Humans are all about yeah. disconnect. Cognitive dissonance. Exactly. 
What would you recommend to listeners of this podcast who want to get out of the bubble of Anglophone music? I would like some specific recommendations <laughs> for people we should listen to and your advice for how to get out of the bubble of Anglophone music. Um, well, I mean, your background is Greek. So I'm sure with the algorithms that exist on YouTube, if you, I don't know, typed in weird, unusual Greek music, you'd probably get some pretty crappy things to start with. But then once the algorithm got the hang of the fact that you really are interested, you might get taken to interesting things. And then the only thing you'd have to deal with is people in your life looking at you weirdly. Oh, what? they do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, there are so many extraordinary artists from other parts of the world who are just who basically don't exist in our marketplace there's a there's a polish composer and singer called Czesław Niemen who started off as a kind of um Tom Jonesy guy and then as the 60s went on he started wearing you know by the standards of communist Poland really weird outfits and he grew his beard long and he had long hair and learned how to play synthesizers and ended up being uh, one of the most interesting synthesizer and organ players that I've heard, made extraordinary records and committed the crime of not being able to sing in English because that's really what it comes down to in our marketplace as soon as something is not in English, we are not interested. Um, and the programmers at radio stations uh, who, you know, used to decide what it was that you heard, if it wasn't in English, forget it, which does rather impoverish, you know, our, our diet, I think. But I don't want to give the impression that what I'm trying to do with the book is break people down and, and, you know, pull them out of their bubble if their bubble is where they're happy. If what the book allows them to do is say, I am in a bubble, I am in a personal and tribal bubble, and I now recognize that, I now recognize that it's not about the intrinsic superior superiority of the music that I like. It is just the fact that, you know, it's the music that was around and I bonded with it and I like it and I want to stay in that bubble. That's fine because that's self-knowledge. That's know thyself. Um, but for the people who do want to, to go out of the bubble, yes, lots to explore. But yet yeah, reducing the anxiety around music would, would be a good, a good result. Michelle Faber, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. This episode starred Michelle Faber and was produced and presented by me. Michelle's book, Listen, on music, sound and us, is out in a couple of weeks. And we really did only scratch the surface in this interview. So if you enjoyed it, pick up a copy. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>